So we're talking about in this series of uh, called Rolling Stones. We're not talking about Mick Jagger and can't get no satisfaction and and brown sugar and Angie. I still love your baby. <laughs> talking about rolling the stones that keep us entombed away in our life so we can begin to walk in the resurrection power that God has always intended us to walk in. Breaking down the chains that were there maybe before we were born. And uh, getting out of the barred windows that maybe were there before we were born. This morning we're going to talk about rolling the stone of shame away. Let me first say a word about uh, um, just a, a, a thank you uh, to all of you who prayed for me this week um, about the debate. And, and a lot of you showed up at the debate and we had a lot of fun at the debate, and so I'm really glad that you were there. Felt a lot of support, um, and, and it, was, it was really good. Uh, we're going to try to get tapes of the, of the debates in this, um, and, and sell them up in the, in the cafeteria. So if you're interested in that, maybe in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll have those. But, but it went good, and uh, I really felt the presence of God there, uh, at least some of the time. Got a little nasty, turned into a shouting mess, but it was okay. We're also, I also want to just thank you for, um, for all your, your prayers and support for me. I, I, last week I kind of dumped, you know, and you need, need to dump once in a while, but you just don't usually use the whole congregation to do it. But God, you know, uses it. So. But I, I really uh, appreciate a place where you can just say things out loud. You can tune your guitar if it's out of tune and you don't need to worry about it. Uh, you can tuck in your shirt if you have to. A place that's just not uptight about this kind of stuff. And, and I just really appreciate being o- you okay with, with me where I'm at. I, all the letters, I got a ton of letters this week, cards and stuff, and I just really appreciate that. And people have been telling me they've been praying for me. And I really feel a whole lot better. Uh, I, I really feel, last Sunday night, we had a prayer meeting at the Lee's house. And about 30 people were there. And the presence of God just came down and just blessed us. I mean, it was powerful. And uh, it was for me like a, a man having gone through uh, the Sahara and with had a, having a parched lips and swollen tongue, and all of a sudden falling into this, uh, you know, ice, icy, watery oasis, and it was so good and refreshing, and so that kind of got the, the things turned around, and so I, I feel a whole lot better. So I, I uh, thank you for just loving me. Okay, Isaiah 61. I want to read from. We're talking about shame this morning. Isaiah chapter chapter 61. And I want to read verse 7. If you have your bulletins, it's in there. And I'm going to explain this verse a little bit later on. Right now, I just want to read it. This is the Lord speaking to Israel, his child, through Isaiah the prophet. And uh, Israel is in the worst possible situation right now. But the Lord says this. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs. Father, I am just amazed by your grace. I'm just overwhelmed just this morning, just during the worship service, by your grace and by your love. I'm amazed, Lord, that you say things that uh, we in the flesh uh, 
sometimes have trouble hearing because they're just too beautiful. They're just too true. They're outrageous, but your grace is outrageous. Lord, you have told us that the anointing breaks the yoke. And some of us here this morning are in a yoke. Some of us, Lord God, here this morning are behind changed doors. Changed doors, Lord. Some of us are behind barred windows, Lord. And the dove, your Holy Spirit within us, Lord, that wants to cause us to walk out of the tomb and in resurrection power, wants to break down those bars and bust the chains and roll away the stone. And Lord, I just pray that your grace infusing this message would cause that to happen, Lord. My frustration is, Lord, that my words can never be uh, big enough and coherent enough to do that. So Lord, help me to rest in the power of your Spirit to accomplish that, Lord. Set your people free here this morning. You want your people free. We need to come out of Egypt. And Lord, I pray that this morning would be a time where you bust open the doors. There are some, Lord, here who have been in bondage for a very, very long time. And maybe so in bondage they don't even know they're in bondage anymore. They're so used to it. Lord, but break, break down the bars, tear apart the chains, roll away the stone, Lord. And use, if it be your pleasure, this message to do it. We pray in your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a... A minister friend of mine who was um, was a, a real accomplished minister, I, very successful at what he did, and uh, wonderful guy, wonderful man. Got to know him a little better, and, and he shared some things about himself with me. One of the things he shared was that he worked out of a deep fear of rejection. Whenever he spoke, whenever he did things, his main concern was that people would like it and that people wouldn't reject him. He also worked, he was a perfectionist, and he didn't like this about himself, but he just was a perfectionist. He, things always had to be right, and he found himself getting very irritated, having a real temper when things didn't go the way he thought they should go. He knew it shouldn't be there, but it didn't seem like he could help himself. And he knew why it was there, but he didn't know what to do about it. Why it was there was because it was sort of typified by an, an event that he remembered uh, in his mind. When he was a little kid, he was uh, about six or seven years old and doing something which is very important for a six or seven year old boy. He was helping his dad uh, fix something in the garage. And his job, his very important task in helping his important dad with this important thing that they were fixing was to hand his dad the tools that he needed when his dad would ask for it. But being six or seven years old, he didn't, he didn't know all the tool names and stuff, so he'd get them occasionally wrong, and his dad was getting angry at this. And at one point, his dad asked for something like a monkey wrench, and, and, and instead this man gave him, a, this little boy, gave him like a screwdriver or something. And the father, finally in frustration, threw down the screwdriver and says, Son, you're as useless as breasts on a bull. Actually, use different language than that. You're as useless as breasts on a bull. This little kid absorbed that. To the dad, it was just an angry statement, off the cuff. It didn't intend it to be so damaging, but it just stuck there. And so much of this man's life was lived out as a strategy to prove that voice wrong. I'm not as useless as breasts on a bull. I, I'll prove it. And so the rest of his life, he's trying to build a little empire, trying to get people to like him, trying to get people to affirm him, operating out of, out of that word, that tape, that message that is engraved on his mind. That is what I call a shame message. That is what shame is. Knew another young lady at, at, at Bethel. 
She always walked kind of like this, like, like a dog who, who was afraid, and, and, you know, hunch, kind of hunched back, and she never could look you in the eyes. When she talked, she'd always kind of look away because she was afraid that you'd look and you'd see who she was, and she was trying to hide who she was. You find out a little bit about her, and you find out that what she operates out of is, is a picture that she has etched in her mind of a father whose hand is always cocked back like this. In fact, she saw Jesus the same way. And she's a person who deserves to be hit or at least deserves to be punished, maybe verbally abused or whatever. She's not going to amount to much. And she operates out of that. That's a shame picture. That's a, a shame memory. When I look back at my life and look at some of the things that I did before I was a Christian and some of the things I struggled with after I was a Christian, I see that there's a lot of voices and, and, and pictures that seem to have formed my identity that, that caused me to do some of the things that I do. Uh, what one in particular, a number of them in particular, but one kind of represents this. I, 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 growing up, always felt like I was in competition with my brother. My brother was an all-state football player, was an all-state baseball player, most popular guy in school, had trophies all over the, the mantle of our fireplace. And I, being uh, the younger boy, was supposed to live up to his reputation, and I never could do it. It was very, very frustrating for me and always kind of indicting, and I always felt in competition with that. And I began to rebel against that because I, I began to realize I'd never measure up. And then around seventh grade sometime, I, I got caught shoplifting. Downtown Dayton's had a coat full of stuff. So stupid. <laughs> I was trying to walk out. <laughs> it was summertime, and I had this long coat. <laughs> like... They hauled me down to the police station, called my parents. They come and pick me up. A humiliating experience. And on the way home, on the way home, uh, they'd given my dad some kind of certificate of arrest or something like that, uh, some kind of official document. And my dad was raging and mad at me and, and frustrated. And at one point he said, well, what should we do with this certificate, Greg? I've got an idea. Let's put a frame around it. Let's frame this thing and let's put it right up on the mantle along with Chris's trophies. And that... He said it out of frustration. He was mad. He, he didn't premeditate that. But those kind of things just cut so deep. They cut so deep. And I think it was at that point where I just realized I'm never going to win this game. And I gave up. I began to go in a very different direction in my life. If I can't win by winning, I'll win by losing. And so I rebel. If that's, the, that's the kind of person I am. I'll never measure up. Shame messages. Now, shame is different than guilt. Guilt and conviction are not bad things. Those are necessary things. Sometimes we need more of that. We need a greater sensitivity to that. But, sh but, but guilt and conviction is about your behavior. It's about something you did. Shame is about something you are. Guilt and conviction is about something external, but shame is about something internal. Guilt and conviction is a temporary thing about a behavior. You repent of it, it's forgiven, and it's done with. But shame is something that takes root in your inner being. It, it, it's there. It's a poison inside the, the, the self-talk of your own mind. It begins to shape who you are. And shaping who you are, it affects the way you see yourself. It affects the way you see God. It affects the way you relate to people. And it's deep. It's resilient. And it's very, very difficult to get rid of. And become, because it's a part of who you are, many times you don't even notice that you have it. But it's there, and it keeps you entombed. It has radical consequences for your life. And I don't think it's possible to, to, to grow up in a, in a fallen world and to live in a fallen world without having, to some degree, some of the shame being attached to you. 
and it has consequences in our life. The person who's got the internal message that, that they're, uh, they're useless and they're, they're as useless as breasts on a bull begins to live out their life trying to prove that they're useful. They become a perfectionist. The person who's got somehow internalized the message, whether it was because of the way they were raised or because something that they themselves chose to do later on in life or whatever, they internalize the message. It becomes part of their identity that, uh, they're, they're, a, they're, that they're a failure. They begin to strategize living out their life to prove that they're not a failure. So they turn into a workaholic and they're always trying to get money success and always trying to get people to approve them. Or the person who's really internalized the message that... that not true and they can be sometimes become manipulative of other people and people manipulators or they become people pleasers and they can never stand up for themselves or the girl who's internalized the message that somehow she's overweight and she's ugly and she's never going to get a date and she's not accepted begins to strategize a way to prove that voice wrong and she develops an eating disorder anorexia or bulimia or whatever it has radical consequences in her life and it's a tomb it keeps us entombed it keeps us chained whether it's something we do that we've done in the past or are doing now or whether it's something that was done to us, it, it, it's a tomb that keeps us from walking in the kind of resurrection power in life that the Lord has for us, that the Lord wants us to walk in. You can never begin to experience joy for free or love for free when you're strategizing to, in order to prove internal voices in your head wrong. You never, you never walk in the kind of peace and self-acceptance that, that God's grace wants for you. As long as you're fighting the internal messages in your mind. It keeps you entombed. It's a, it's, a, it's a bar on the window. It's a chain on your wrist. It's a stone on the grave. It keeps you from walking out. Other people, other people don't strategize as a way of trying to prove the voice is wrong. They strategize in a way to prove the voice is right because they've given up trying to prove the voice is wrong. So there's a, a young lady that I knew, Christian lady. I really believe she loved the Lord, but man, did she struggle with promiscuity and sexual addiction? She was sexually abused as a, as a young woman. And somehow, very deeply etched in her mind was the message that her value in life, her importance in life, and the way that she's significant, and the only way she can be significant is when she brings sexual pleasure to a man. And she, keep, she would fight that, but eventually, you try to make your external reality line up with what you think is appropriate in your mind. And what's, what's deep down in your self-identity is more fundamental and more determining of your behavior than anything that you might believe so even though she believed it was wrong, she kept on getting into these situations. Bondage. and You can't ever walk in victory over sin. You never walk in the full holiness that God has for you, the full, the full wholeness that God has for you, as long as that shame is there. And it's amazing to me how resilient it is, how tenacious it is. You some, many of you know what I'm talking about firsthand. You can read books and books and books and books about it, and you can, you can do all sorts of techniques about it. And a person can grow in the Lord and be spiritually mature in a thousand other ways, but the message is still there. And it colors, it filters, it affects everything. It's a, it's a pollutant. How do we roll that stone away? How do we break those chains? Here's why I want to read Isaiah 61. The Lord says to his people, Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion of the land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Here's what's going on here in this verse. It's clear in, 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 in the context of this verse that when the Lord says they will not receive shame, he's got a particular kind of shame in mind. He's talking about the shame 
that would come as a natural consequence of all the evil that Israel had done. And he's talking about the kind of shame that would come to a son that would be disinherited. A, a, a father in Jewish culture could do this. You could disown your son, or the son could disown you, and that was the most shameful thing that could be. But the Lord here says, instead of bringing upon you the shame of the, the acts that you've done, and instead of bringing upon you the, uh, the immeasurable shame of disowning you as my child, Israel was called God's child, but instead of bringing upon you shame, the Lord says, I'm going to bring upon you a double portion of the inheritance. Now, a double portion of the inheritance is what the firstborn son got. Others just got a portion of the inheritance, but in Jewish culture, the firstborn son received a double portion of the inheritance. And so here the Lord is saying, Israel, instead of your shame, I'm not only going to not disown you, I'm going to treat you like my firstborn. I'm going to give you double the blessing I would otherwise give. And what you need to know is the context in which this is spoken. Israel was God's child. In the Old Testament, Israel comes to, to symbolize the, 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 the church, and, and, and this is God's nation, this is God's child. He calls, he calls Israel God, his own son. Out of Egypt I have called my, called my son. In, in, in the original verse in Hosea, that refers to, to Israel. But Israel rarely acted like God's child. 30-second summary of the Old Testament. God brings Israel out of Egypt. What do they do? They're constantly murmuring. They go 40 years into the wilderness. They're constantly murmuring, and they're constantly bickering, and they're constantly rebelling against God, and they're constantly falling into idolatry. They finally enter the land of Canaan, as God promised them, but you'd think that would get their act together, but it didn't. In the book of Judges, you read about this initial period in the land of Canaan, and, and, and it was a roller coaster history. When you'd have a good king, things would go okay, but when you'd have an evil king, the whole nation would follow after false god. God, they begin to practice evil evil religious practices, even causing their own children. They would sacrifice their own children to these pagan gods, rebelling against God, throwing off the laws that God had given them. For a brief period of time under the reign of David, things went pretty good. But soon after the reign of David, things began to fall apart again. This child of God, this nation that God had raised up to be his own and that God wanted to use to reach the entire world, this nation got involved in, in civil warfare. They began to fight with one another. They became very greedy. They became unjust. They began to victimize the poor. They began to reject all of God's laws. They began to follow after uh, uh, more intensely than they'd ever done before false gods and false religious practices. And God kept on warning them, saying, if you don't stop this, you're going to bring destruction on yourself. If you don't follow my ways, they're, they're for your sake, not mine. You're going to bring destruction upon yourself. But Israel didn't want to listen. This child of God wanted to be rebellious, wanted to run in the other direction. And so destruction started coming to Israel. First, there was a civil war where the, 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 the nation of Israel was divided in two, between a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom fell completely to Assyria and pretty much vanished because they, began to, they just intermarried with, with Assyria, and, and, and they lost their Jewishness. 150 years later, the southern kingdom begins to fall. Different nations coming against the southern kingdom. They're being taken slaves. The walls are falling down. The temple's being destroyed. Everything that's distinctive about Israel is being ruined. And it's in the midst of that, right smack dab in the midst of that, that the Lord says this, My child, my son... I am not going to bring shame on you. I'm not going to disown you. I'm going to give you a double blessing. 
just when you'd think. I mean, it was a shame. It was a disgrace. God's own child, God's own nation, the one that's supposed to be used as a way to witness to the world. You're supposed to be the one to glorify God. You're supposed to be the one to, to, to set an example for the other nations. You're supposed to be the one that testifies about how, God, how powerful your God is, and in doing that, to be a witness to the other nations. You're not supposed to be captive to anyone. You're supposed to be a light into the world, but instead you're warring with each other, you're fighting with each other, you're preferring other gods over me. And now you're being brought into bondage to these other nations, the very ones you're supposed to be witnessing to. It's a shame. It's a disgrace. It's an abomination. And in the midst of the shame and the disgrace and the abomination, the Lord says, Israel, instead of shame, instead of rejecting you, I'm not only going to own you. I'm not only going to embrace you. I'm going to give you a double blessing. A double blessing. And the point I want to bring out this morning is this, because I believe that this is what will break the chains and roll away the stone and break the bars on the window and set the dove free, is that we, in the midst of whatever we might be in the midst of, even when we are on our way down, God speaks this word of promise, this word of grace, for no merit on your own, not because of who you are, not because of the behavior, not because you look so good. I want you to know something. I'm not going to disown you, and the shame that you would have coming to you, I'm not going to give to you. In fact, I'm going to give you a double blessing. Right when you think God would say the opposite, he says, I'm going to double it. Okay, I just, I just raised the stakes. I'm going to double everything I was going to give to you. And when we hear that, when we, when we hear that, when we see it, when we feel it, when we see God's grace, that's the very thing that begins to turn us around. What you've got to see here is that God obviously, obviously doesn't wait for us to get our acts together before he decides to bless us. He doesn't wait for us to get our house clean and everything in order and for us to become spotless and sanctified and purified and religious and our minds free from all sorts of doubt. He doesn't wait till we get our lives in order, our marriages in order, and, and our habits in order before he decides to speak a graceful word to us. He doesn't even wait for us to finally turn around right when we're going in the opposite direction, right when we're going away from him. That's when he decides to double all the blessings he was going to give in the first place. What kind of an outrageous deity are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a deity who's got outrageous grace. Unthinkable grace, incomprehensible grace. It doesn't make any kind of sense of the kind of sense that we could think with our own mind, but there it is right there. I'm going to give you a double portion. The picture I had in my mind, and it's a silly one, but this is how I, how I think. This morning I was praying and I just got this picture. Let me just share it with you. It's like, it's like a, a little kid, and you know where I'm coming from on this if you know me at all, but a little kid, my little Nathan, or maybe me, and I'm at the supper table and I'm not doing anything right, and I'm spilling the milk and I'm throwing the food. I use this illustration all the time because it's so real to me. And it, at a birthday party maybe, and just constantly going crazy, maybe sassing off, doing all the wrong things, and getting worse and worse and worse. So finally, mom says, no cake for you, no dessert for you, you don't get any cake. And dad says, you don't get any cake. And brother says, oh, you don't get any cake. And sister says, you don't get any cake. And grandma and grandpa chip her and said, yeah, you're a bad boy, you don't get any cake. And just then Jesus walks in as the kid's getting worse and worse and says, what are you talking about? He gets two pieces of cakes. He gets the whole thing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Twofold it abounds. And what you need to know this morning is that whatever sin struggle you might have, however deep the sin may be, God's grace is twice that deep. And however intense the shame might be, God's will to glorify you is twice as intense. 
However strong you are in your rejecting of God, if you're a believer, you've got to know this, that God's acceptance of you is twice as strong as whatever rejection you might have. However dark it may be getting, you've got to know that God's light is twice as powerful as the darkness. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And God has no intention of rejecting you, and God has no intention of bringing that shame upon you. Just when you thought that was going to be the case, he ups the ante twofold. He says it's time to pour on the Jesus love. And see, it's when we, if we can just hear that word of promise as we're on the way down, if we can just see something of God's love, this twofold love, this outrageous love that doubles the ante just when you think he'd call off all bets, if we can just see that and hear it and feel something of it, even as we're on the way down, that's the thing that begins to turn us around. That's the thing that begins to turn us on the inside. That's the thing that begins to break the shame cycle that's pushing us in that direction. It's the outrageous, outlandish grace of God that comes to us, doubles itself right when we think it shouldn't be there at all, that begins to turn us around and transform our life. Maybe you're here this morning and... and you're not heading in the wrong direction right now, but what you are is, is you've been plagued with you've been plagued with a lot of that kind of those echoes, those echoes, useless as breasts on a bull. Worthless as a three dollar bill, never amount to anything. Whatever it may be. That's been there, and that's been a tombstone in your life, and that's just been kind of a plaguing thing. Or maybe it's been past failures that you've had, moral failures or, or, or business failures or, or marriage failures. And see, we can even say, okay, God forgives me, I know that. But, but, but you walk along, and, and, and yet you still feel a certain heaviness there. And it's like, after what I've been through, after what I've done, even as adults we do this, 25 years old, go through a divorce, it's like, well, that ruins it, doesn't it? Now, okay, I'm forgiven, I know that, but I, I'll never quite be up to where I would have been. I'll always be second class. I guess that's it for my ministry. And the enemy, Satan, you know his name, Satan means adversary. Satan means adversary. And the main thing he does, the Bible says this in Revelations, he's the accuser of the brethren. And he loves this stuff. And this is his main weapon. I really believe it. He takes this stuff. He loves this stuff. He salts the wounds. He takes those piercing little, little arrows. Uh, let's frame this and put it on the mantle next to your brother's trophies. He takes that stuff and he likes to wind it and grind it and repeat it over and over again. Shove it into the subconscious and work on it all day long there. Because if he's successful in doing that, however much truth may we, we may receive, if that's going on there, we always walk a little beneath where God wants us to walk. And maybe he can't take away our salvation, but he can take away most of the benefits of the salvation. How do we roll away that stone? How do we break out of that? We break out of it by hearing and seeing and beginning to experience this double portion grace in the midst of all of that stuff. However much garbage it is, however wrong it is, however stenchy it is, in the middle of it all, if we can just see the outrageous grace of God that pierces the whole thing, that is what begins to transform it. You don't break out of the voices. Now get this, because this is what most people do. You'll never break out of this cycle, this vault of shame, by fighting against it, by trying to argue with it, by trying to... This is why a lot of... A lot of the, the self-help books just, just don't, don't work because they're not based on anything. You're just supposed to, you know, fight it with your own words. I'm not that bad. I'm not that worthless. I'm not this. I'm not that. But you see, what he, 
The perfectionist is a guy who's been fighting the voice of, of worthlessness all of his life. The workaholic is a guy who's been fighting the voice of failure all of his life. The anorexic is a person who's been fighting the voice that they're fat all their life. Fighting the voice, engaging with the voice on your own power and in your own strategy is, 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 is the problem. It's not the solution. What is the solution? How do we get out of this? The solution, I believe, in a nutshell, is this. And it comes out of Isaiah 61.7, but I could as easily point to 500 other verses. It's when we sit in all the midst of that, as Israel was on the way down. And here in the midst of that, God's word towards us, just when we expect him to run away, he doubles the ante in blessing towards us. When we hear that, when we believe that, and look only towards that, the bondage of the voices are broken because to the extent that we hear God's word about who we are and what his intention is towards us, those other voices, you don't prove them wrong. You'll never prove them wrong. But they become quite irrelevant. They become quite irrelevant. Look at it this way. I don't know if this analogy is going to work, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. If I'm walking down the street and there's this little fifth grader there, Really acting tough, really acting cool, you know. Yeah. He comes up to me and he looks at me and he says, You are a scumbag, slime ball, sloppy faced, ugly looking, uncool dude. You reek, man. Your mother hated you. No one wants to be around you. He starts hurling it, and your mother smells of boysenberry or something. A couple of you got that. What would I do? How should I respond to this fifth grader, this little brat coming up and insulting me? Well, if, if, if I, one thing I could do is I could start to defend myself. Oh, that's not true. Why, why, how can you say such things about me? Well, I'm not that dumb. I, I got an education. I got a degree here. I'll prove it to you. And my mother did love me. I mean, come on. And, and I'm not that bad. I mean, what do you think? But I could do that. But you look at me and you think, you know, boy, does this guy got to get a life. <laughs> Hopefully, I'd have a little bit of a sense of self-identity. I... I would know about myself enough to know that this kid's word isn't true. And not only that, but even if what he's saying is true, true, it doesn't count. He's a fifth grader. What does he know? <laughs> and so the appropriate thing to do would be not even to argue with him. I would think that if, if someone starts, you got to, they always say, consider the source. It's amazing how many fights you'll avoid if you just consider the source. Consider the source. Do you really care what this kid thinks? Do you give a rip of what, you know, we can fill in the blank here with other relatives or what have you, what they think? And if you don't, why engage with it? Why stoop to that level? You're giving so much credibility to this fifth grade dwee by, by even arguing with him. <laughs> Hopefully you would just sort of chuckle to yourself and laugh and think to yourself, what a dweeb. <laughs> but it's not worth paying attention to. And here is the point. Who, who's more important? <laughs> this is Sunday School 101. God or your friends? <laughs> God or your parents? Whose voice counts for more? God or mom? God or dad? God or grandpa? God or grandma? God or brother? God or past experience? You maybe are surrounded by a, a bunch of voices that are constantly indicting you and past experiences that are constantly indicting you and memories that are constantly indicting you. 
But the deliverance comes not when you try to argue with them and prove them wrong and defend yourself. Forget it. Once you argue, you're lost. Especially because there's demonic power invested in that. Freedom comes when you look to what God says and resolve it in your heart that what God says is true, however outrageous it might feel to you. Because when you look at what God says, all these other voices become irrelevant. They turn into fifth grade little dweeby, whiny, snivelly those voices that aren't worth paying attention to. Freedom comes not when you win the fight for your mind and your own brain, but when that fight becomes utterly irrelevant because what God says about you is the only thing that really counts. And then the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. So if God says you're worthwhile... Laugh at the voices that says you're not worthwhile. They're a bunch of fifth-grade sniffling brats. If God says you're redeemed, laugh at the voices that say you're not redeemed because they're a bunch of fifth-grade sniveling brats. If God says you're holy, if God says you're your child, if God says I'm going to double the blessing I originally intended to give you right in the midst of all your sin, laugh at all the voices that might tell you otherwise because they're a bunch of fifth-grade sniveling brats and you don't need to listen to them. That's where the freedom is. That's where the freedom is. Praise the Lord. You come out of the tomb, you come out of the tomb when you begin to realize that the stone is utterly, utterly irrelevant. Satan, the only authority Satan has on us is our willingness to stoop to his level and argue with him. I like that, if I do say so myself. <laughs> next, to, next to God's word towards us, Satan, Satan becomes this little shrinking, sniveling, fifth grade person that's not worth listening to. Paul says it in Colossians 2 like this. One of my favorite verses in Colossians 2, 15 and 16, 14, 15 and 16. When we, when, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took all the things that were written against us. All the things that were written against us. All the things that Satan had on us. All the na-na-na-na-na-nas. All of them. All the evil that we did. All the sin that we did or ever shall do. All the good deeds that we failed to do all the most deepest sin in the innermost recesses of our heart and all the ungodly attitudes and whatever it may be. And he took it and he nailed it to the cross. And when he nailed it to the cross, he obliterated it. And when he obliterated it, he made, the Bible says in Colossians 2.16, a mockery out of Satan, a laughingstock out of Satan, a joke out of Satan. Why? Because he just took away everything that the enemy could ever have on us if we only believe it. Satan is the prince of darkness, and he needs darkness to operate. He's got to operate in secrecy. So he, gets he loves to get involved in these little arguments in the secrecy of your mind. So you try to hide things from God and try to hide things from other people because you're ashamed of yourself. And once you get to that far, he's got you because he's in darkness. That's how he lives. He needs darkness to be empowered. He needs secrecy to be empowered. He needs shame to be empowered. But what the cross means is this, that all of that, all that voices, all that power is invalidated because what God says about you because of Jesus is what is true, so nothing else really matters. So we can be real. We can come out with this. And we can say, look, you're here this morning. You're a sinner. Maybe your marriage has failed. Maybe you haven't been the best parent. Maybe your kids haven't turned out all right. Maybe you've had moral failings in your life. Maybe you had an abortion last year. Maybe you, you, you wrestle with sexual issues. Maybe you've got a chemical addiction. Fine, we've got to deal with that. But one thing you've got to know for sure, and that is this. That, if you are a believer, that is about your behavior. Your identity is settled in the cross. Your identity is settled in grace. Your identity is settled in the promise of the Lord where he says, I'm going to give you a double blessing right when you think I shouldn't give you an aid all. That's who you really are. That's your identity. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And when you understand that, and when you, when you just get that and, and, and look to Christ and let that define you, 
That is what gives you, begins to give you the motivation, the internal affirmation, the internal power to begin to break out of the bars and break the chains and roll away the stones. Because you begin to know who you are. And you hear the voice on the way down begins to turn you around. That's why Paul says in, in Romans 7.24, Romans 7.24, he says, you know, the good that I want to do, I can't do. And the evil that I want to avoid, I can't avoid. Sounds like this, 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 this uh, woman that I knew with the promiscuity. I don't know how I get in. I just hate it. I hate this about myself. And then Paul says in, in, in Romans 7, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Because it feels like a body of death. Well, I guess I got to work a little harder at it. Guess I got to try a little harder with it. Guess I got to argue against the voices a little bit more. Guess I got to prove dad wrong. I got to prove mom wrong. He doesn't say that. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he answers his own question Who shall deliver me? He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That is the answer. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. When you realize that no one has the right has the authority to tell you who you are other than the one who created you and the one who saved you, there is freedom. And what he says about you is, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that doesn't give you license to do whatever you please. What that does is it gives you freedom to begin to live as he pleases. Because that's what, when you see that love and you hear that outrageous grace and you feel his embrace, that's what begins to turn your heart around. I really believe that repentance for sin comes as a result of first seeing God's love towards you. It's when I feel him hug me, when I'm running away. It's when I feel him hug me when I'm pushing away that leads me first to say, when I see his beauty, how could I ever wanted to be away from you? And I'm sorry for the way I've been, for the thoughts I think. Help me with it. That's what produces the change. That's what produces the change. God wants his people free. He wants us walking out of the tombs. He wants the stones rolled away. And my prayer this morning is that we can begin to find some deliverance.